Hi, everyone. Welcome to Beyond the Map Tiles, an IEEE GRSS limited podcast series on Project Geospatial. I'm Ryan Lewis, and today I'm talking with the one and only Clint Norman, uh, the CEO and founder of NewView. Clint, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here, Ryan. And, um, you know, the geospatial world um, and space industry are just in my blood. So this is, this is a great show to be on. Thank you. No, well, I really appreciate you making time, and you have, and the whole company has been uh, rather busy in the last uh, couple of weeks, so we know time is at a premium. But, you know, for those that are perhaps new or new-ish, right, to the space and maybe geospatial sector at large, you know, before we kind of dive into what you're doing with NewView and kind of all the big announcements you guys have had just in the last few weeks, why don't you just give us a little background on, on yourself and kind of how you got I think a lot of people, you know, they love space, they love the sector, but it can be kind of daunting to enter, right? I know I felt that way when I first started kind of looking in the sector back in 2013. Yeah. Um, so, you know, being in the space industry has been one of the most rewarding parts of not just my career, but, but my life. Um, I joined the industry about 15 years ago. Um, moved to an area just outside of Berlin, Germany, and joined a company which is arguably the first new space company, um, I think, on the market. Um, it was a company called RapidEye. Um, it was founded in 1998. We launched our first commercial small sats in 2008, which meant it was the first commercial small sat constellation. It was it was so new space that we didn't even have a, a name for it back then. <laughs> you were, you were uh, a sector of one. Yeah, we were, we were a sector of one. And, um, you know, I, I came from a world, um, you know, highly correlated to Fortune 500 companies where it was suit and tie every day. And I show up to Rapid Eye my first day in a suit and tie. And there's a guy out on the lawn with no shirt on in his cutoff jeans um, and just kind of contemplating life. And at the time, people affectionately called us Rapid Eye University. I mean, we were just a, a company full of PhDs and remote sensing scientists that had this grand idea of, of mapping any place on the earth any day. And um, it was pretty amazing. So, so I joined the company with, with one qualification, um, and that was I was an American uh, that spoke English. Um, and so, but, you know, I, I just, I always had this love of geography and space, and those two things just really came together all at one time with RapidEye and, and just started this amazing career for me. You know, what's just cool about that and just to kind of emerge my own experience with your story there, I remember this is right after we launched uh, the Cosmic Land uh, with Inkytel. And I remember we were looking for imagery, right, the, to open source. And actually the first image data set that we ever worked with was all RapidEye. Wow. That's right? So... Yeah, so like anytime I think about uh, you know the, this sector as a whole, I, I actually go back to uh, to that data set because uh, it's still out there. So uh, no, you guys were ahead of the curve. Well, Kate, you know, fast forward from you know that experience where people probably thought you were the attorney uh, showing up from America <laughs> uh, to to today. Like, what have you seen? Right, just from that first day at Rapid Eye to kind of where we're at now, from both the industry evolving, like what kind of, in your view, what really jump started the sector for more entrants to come in and essentially become one of the more exciting areas, I would say, in the venture community in the last five years? Yeah, I think um, one of the unique things about 
rapid eye is that, you know, I heard this comment that I don't know whether it was a real, real quote or not, where, um, where Elvis said of his manager, he wrote the book and everyone else just read it. And I feel like we were kind of writing the book as we went. And, and I think the thing that, that really set the stage for, for future commercial small site constellations is probably very akin to when someone finally broke the four minute mile, once it happened, everyone was doing it, you know, and rapid eye had this grand scheme and, and doing it at such a low cost, low budget for the time, um, that I think once people saw that it could actually be done, then it really broke the, you know, broke the market wide open. And we started seeing commercial small site constellations all over the place. And we saw that develop even as, as rapid eye was eventually purchased by Blackbridge and then Blackbridge was purchased by planet. Um, and then we saw commercial small sat SAR constellations. Um, we've, we've seen hyperspectral and thermal and, you know, once, once that barrier was broken, it just opened the doors wide open and, and everyone believed in themselves to be able to do that commercially. So I'll propose this, uh, just for naming one of your future, uh, satellites is just 359. Right in honor, maybe Roger Bannister, maybe in honor, just breaking the four minute mile. Right, I'll, I'll throw that out. Yeah, yeah, not, not great in marketing, but I, I propose it as a thought. Yeah, and and I think you know, living living that life, um, you know, with Rapid Eye, we went through just a ton of things that that no commercial space company, I guess, really had gone through in the same way. We weren't dependent upon um, U.S. government for our livelihood and contracts. We built out this commercial system, and I think it's the the model that that everyone strives toward today is to make sure that they can provide great services to the commercial market, and government customers are are another customer in that portfolio. And so, you know, from there, I think that you know, having learned all of those lessons, fast forward um, to to about ten years, I guess about ten years to um, a time in the not so distant past. You know, we see the the rapid eye diaspora just all over the world in different constellations and being successful. And having taken that experience, um, even I, I started a, a small consulting company of of eleven people, and we went and worked with a lot of the commercial small sat constellations that are are on the market today in hyperspectral and thermal um, and SAR. And one of the things that we were able to see is that the model's getting better. Um, people are still repeating the same old mistakes that we made at rapid eye, but they're learning faster. Yep. They're iterating and, and pivoting quicker in those decisions. And what I, I think the thing I learned through that whole process with the company we founded then is that it's not the company that gets it right. It's the company that learns from the mistakes the quickest and recovers and moves on to the, the next piece. And I think, you know, with our current company today, we've been able to take those learnings of the last five constellations that we've worked on um, and really leverage that into some early commercial success with our company um, and to learn really all of the the things that we hope we can avoid and make mistakes we hope we can avoid making um, and taking advantage of some of the new learnings that we've learned out in the market since. Well, I, I suspect I can guess a couple, but uh, for those that are maybe newer, uh, uh, to this domain, what are like, give me like one or two, just like kind of mistakes, business mistakes, or maybe technical mistakes, maybe both, uh, that you see or have seen time and time again, right. Regardless of the modality of the proposed constellation. Yeah. The, the phenomenology of the, the sensor doesn't, doesn't really matter that 
and when I see some of the mistakes out there that have been made, um, and they're not, maybe they're not lifelong mistakes for the the industry of commercial remote sensing, but every early company attempts to bypass the the value adder market that exists around the world. You know, there are hundreds of resellers that that resell data, also do value added analytics that come along with that, and they're all either geographically aligned or vertically aligned throughout the world. And one of the things you see happen is that these companies, they tend to, you know, tell this great big story about how they're going to leverage going all the way to the end user with analytics and not really turn over any of the data to the end user, but really just try to bypass that whole market. But, you know, it's a, it's a market that it's not really something you would want to bypass. You've got all of these allies that want to get your data to the end user. They want to make your data useful. And Many times in that effort, I've seen companies either go insolvent, insolvent or really just cut out that piece altogether um, and downsize their their team because they see that if you're bypassing these hundreds of of resellers and value adders around the world, you're not just you're not really gaining gaining a ton in revenue. What you're doing is you're creating 180 competitors or 300 competitors rather than finding a market where you truly create an environment where a rising tide lifts all boats. It's, it's interesting too, because you think particularly for like very, very specialized products, like, like what we're talking about here, whether it's imagery or SAR or anything else and, and uh, in the phenomenology categories, like distribution is key, right? To your point. And one thing that, you know, that I certainly learned uh, very quickly was how established a lot of those channels were. And I, and I think there's, you know, certainly a desire, right. With, if you look at things from a software perspective to kind of control, right. The whole stack. But I, I think that's, that's a, a great takeaway, right. Cause I, I still just even recently saw sort of a pitch and it was, again, someone saying we're going to control all access points and you're just like, I, I, I get why you're saying that, but, uh, I think you're, you're missing the mark on a couple things. So that, that's yeah. one. maybe what, what's another one that kind of jumps out? Yeah. The, the other one that jumps out at me, um, is so many earth observation startups forget about the ground segment and spend all of their time on the space segment and getting the data to the ground is one thing, but getting that data processed in an analytics ready format that gets to the end user is huge. And they really tend to underestimate that. And um, I think, you know, it's not something that's getting better. They're not doing a better job of, of doing that. And you see them playing catch up in the last 12 months before launch, thinking it's a pretty easy software solution, but it's everything from the antenna to storage to processing and processing to a level that the customer wants, not just processing to a raw format. Yeah. And it, 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 it doesn't really seem to, uh, to head home until all of a sudden, right. You'll have, you know, customers asking about speed, right. To accessibility in an application. And all of a sudden it goes from the back runner issue, right. To the most important issue in the company, uh, overnight and, and not to, not to critique, uh, but you know, you're now talking about very different skills, right. If you have a company comprised of a lot of you know, hardware experts now suddenly say, Hey, can we build out, right? A whole, a whole data lake with a whole like data processing pipeline and APIs and other applications suddenly 
you got a lot of people kind of scratching their heads. And so the sooner, yeah. right, you can be in Toronto, the better, right? So, you know, you have a lot of these lessons learned, right? You, you've been, you know, been in the sector now uh, for some time. Like, what, why don't we start from the top before we kind of get into the specifics of Newsview? Like, what, maybe we start with light, with LIDAR, right? Because I, I had this conversation recently with someone and I was explaining uh, some of the, uh, cool things I kind of saw in the in the geospatial and space world. Someone interrupted me and they're like, "What, what, what are again?" Like, and I maybe it's because I operate in you know uh, certain circles. I just assume everyone's tracking uh, this. But why don't we start with LiDAR and then we can work into what prompted you to really focus on uh, that phenomenology? Sure. Um, so LiDAR is is an acronym for light detection and ranging and. Um, in some circles, you know, pre, pre-modern history and geospatial, um, many people called it LADAR, laser radar. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the, the majority of the time that I've spent in the industry has been a combination of optical um, and radar imagery. And LIDAR is really some phenomenology that's akin to both. Um, it's optical, it's light, but it behaves like a, like a radar. And for those that may not come from the industry, if you were to if you happen to be a golfer and you ever use a laser range finder to see how far it is from where you are to the pin, then you've used LIDAR. If you've ever done a do-it-yourself project at home where you had to measure, um, you know, how wide or long a room is or how long something is you need to, to construct, the laser is, is much more accurate, right? And so when I've been out in the market for the last 15 years. A majority of what I've done has been on, you know, company building and business development and all of these really close relationships with, with customers and end users. And what, you know, no customer ever said, I hope someone builds a space-based LIDAR. What they were always saying was, man, we need way more LIDAR than what we have. Or they were always talking about these pain points and those pain points were, we need some LIDAR to go with our radar imagery. We need some LIDAR to go with our optical or thermal or hyperspectral. Insert your phenomenology there. And what we kept hearing are the different ways they would use this for mapping um, flood-prone areas before a flood or mapping out um, terrain to incredible precision at the centimeter level rather than meters and or I guess inches and feet if you're in North America. But, you know, we kept hearing these things over and over, no matter what phenomenology that, that we were working in. And so that really pushed us, you know, to come to the conclusion that this is something that's really needed because 95% of the earth has never been mapped with LIDAR or to high accuracy. You know, it's all been done with radar or optical. And there's just so much more you can measure and learn when you're doing it at such high precision, precision that you get with, with safe invisible lasers. How, um, kind of another like, kind of background point, but how is, how are the limited LIDAR data sets that are currently out there, how are, how are those collected right now? Yeah, um, that, that's really where the business case starts is that all of this LIDAR data, you know, the users in the geospatial community and all vertical markets within the commercial community, they absolutely love LIDAR. And, you know, many times if they've got money to spend, they'll spend it on LIDAR before they spend it on anything else because it's right. so foundational. But the challenge is collecting it. Today, it's collected with airplanes or drones um, or UAVs. And what that really does is limit how much LIDAR data you can collect in a given amount of time. And as an example, there's a U.S. program with the USGS. Um, it's for creating high-quality elevation data of the entire U.S. It took more than a decade 
to get that covered with airplanes, right? And so by the time you finish, you're already way out of date, right? And so, <laughs> <To> redo it, <laughs> right? Like a never-ending story. Yeah, and and there are countries out there that have mapped their entire country as well, but they're they're small in nature by by most accounts. But that five percent of the Earth that's been mapped, most of it's the U.S., the continental U.S. that represents that. And so um, that limited ability to collect LIDAR data really produces a scalability problem. And it's also pushed the cost of LIDAR data up to north of $400 per square kilometer. And you're seeing optical and radar data in the $25 to the $100, $125 range. But, you know, with some of the new entrants in the SAR market, we're seeing a few hundred dollars for a scene in synthetic aperture radar. And it's really pushed that to a commoditized level. And right now, you know, we're seeing, you know, LIDAR data, it's, it's challenging to get because of these limited supply and high prices. And so we really thought it would be a, a great idea to build a constellation of these satellites to be able to collect the entire earth on an annual basis with LIDAR and really break that market open. So that's awesome. So then the big question was, you know, you're entering, you're yet again, uh, paving a new trail, right? Or perhaps never put uh, writing a new book where you're trying to collect something from low Earth orbit. So, with new view, like how, like how do you even like start like when you're trying to take on something brand new like that, right? Because I think one of the things, particularly right, if you read a lot of the sort of papers, right, and work that come out of, uh, in this case, GRSS. Right. There's a lot of like great, like applied research, but I know at least as a frequent reader myself, I often scratch my head and think, how do I get that out of, out of the paper and actually into a concept? So you, you know, you see this need, you have a great idea, like what steps did you take? Like, how did you build that crew and kind of make this from an idea into something track, like actually actionable? You know, I think with any idea, you have to start with the result before you go to everything else. What result are you trying to derive from whatever process you're going through? And um, there's, a, there's a need out in the market to create really high precision um, and highly accurate data. And so I, I started there with understanding that need and then started building the business case out from that. Um, and as you try to get from the page to something practical, you know, I think you've got to have experts in their respective field. And the way it kind of developed for us is, you know, I started with the need and the use case, and then I went out to a lot of the users that I'd heard all of this from over the years and went back to them. And, and you know, when you're doing a startup, one of the things they say is you've got to make sure you've got a good product market fit. And the good thing about the case with NewView is that the customers had been telling me for 15 years what they yeah. want. And we didn't start by building a cool sensor and then try to find a customer base for it. We started with the customer base and worked back to the sensor on what we wanted to develop. And so we knew pretty well what sensor needed to be built to solve those problems. And the good thing is the US 3DEP program uh, with, from USGS, like it's so incredibly well designed. It just had a, it has a data limitation problem, but it's really well desi designed. It's really well defined on what the user requirements are. So we didn't have to spend a ton of time figuring that that one out either. So when we got to that conclusion that we know what sensor needs to be built, um, I had been reading, you know, we'd been looking for a chief scientist to come on board. Um, and we were totally self-funded in the beginning, um, bootstrapped off of, um, you know, just personal savings and, and things like that. And I've been reading, you know, textbook after textbook on the subject to get past my, my market acquired knowledge of it. And then, 
Um, I interviewed quite a few people in the, for the, the chief scientist position and my chief of staff said, hey, Clint, you know that book you were reading? Why don't you just call the guy that wrote the book? And so I did. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. So I called, I called the guy that wrote the book, Dr. Paul McManaman, and he was a former chief of the Air Force Research Lab, 40 years of experience with the Air Force. And he said, hey, I've been wanting to do this forever. Like, let's do it. And so we got together and um, came up with, you know, the preliminary concept of, you know, what the derived in use case was. And he put together, um, you know, the first concept designs that we eventually took through PDR and, and all of that. And, um, you know, we, we started there. And from there, we started building out um, leaders in their field. You know, we've got um, people that have been on the government side on what, you know, understanding what government demands are and the requirements from the commercial side, from the um, orbital dynamics and spacecraft side. And we just started pulling these people in that have been in my network. I've been building forever. And it all just started gelling and coming together. That's awesome. You know, I think like probably the thing that I love most about just the aerospace, you know, community having been in it while myself is what you exactly what you just said when you reached out to the author is you meet people that will go, you know, I've been thinking about this for any number of years. Yeah. Why don't we do it? Right. And the fact that that is now happening, whether it's, you know, in the satellites, the sensors or, or in the transportation layer, but whatever it may be, I just think like I hear that time and time again, and it is hard. I would challenge anyone, right. Not to get, uh, not to become a fan, right. When you just sit in on some of your initial discussions. For sure. And so, you know, you've had quite a lot of fanfare, right. In the, in the last couple of weeks, right. With both. Uh, some announcements with pilot customers, as well as coming out of stealth mode. Uh, and instead of me uh, uh, taking any of your thunder, why, why don't you just tell us where, where you're at as a company, sure. right? It's been a big past month for you guys. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we've we've been on the road pretty constantly. Like for the first half of May, um, when we came out of stealth mode, um, it was early May of this year, 2023. And um, we came out of stealth mode. And I was blown away at the international recognition we, we received from all continents, all kinds of publications, all vertical markets. Um, I, I'm not someone that's been a big social media person. And the amount of influx we got from <laughs> direct, like people just guessing my email address and, you know, figuring out how to reach me on LinkedIn and Twitter and, and all these other channels, like I, I re literally couldn't keep up with it. And I think one of the things we've seen having been in this business for 15 years, I've never seen so much customer response as what we've seen this time because it's just been, it's been waited on for so long. So we came out of stealth mode in early May um, and great response. And we actually, you know, we had a new investor that, uh, that came on and we, we're big believers in, you know, creating data for great climate science and international um, applications with lots of stakeholders in the environmental world. Um, and we had Leonardo DiCaprio that came on um, as an investor, and we released that about three weeks, um, four weeks after we came out of stealth mode, so a month after we came out of stealth mode. And then it all started over again. Like, and we started reaching into markets and, and groups that just through that announcement that have been reaching out again that, um, that we never expected to have such good response. You know, and the thing too that I've been most pleased with is Every time there's a new company that's announced or something, you get this one group of fans and you get these group of haters out there that, that internet troll you. And we've had zero 
of that so far. I hope I'm not encouraging them to do it now, but like, <laughs> no, I'm not going to, you know, we've had zero. And I think, um, you know, groups that want this type of data, it's just unbelievable how much positive and strong response that we've seen. And, and that it just, as a founder, um, that goes through the ups and downs of building a business, like it's never been so encouraging as to see that type of, re of response and support from the market. It's outstanding, right? And I, I, uh, you know, when I when I saw that uh, uh, you had uh, Leonardo DiCaprio on the on the cap table as well, I thought, you know, never in my life would I be able to talk about uh, space, uh, special knowledge in space, and one of my favorite actors all like in the same sentence, and then it's all converging as one. So I have need of end for that. So that's oh, that's that's cool. Now you know in. We're not a group that's gone out there. We didn't seek any angel investors. We haven't had any of those. And we're not celebrity investor seekers. But um, that one actually just developed, you know, really well. It's not that we didn't approach him, you know, because he's an actor, but because he has a really great platform on climate and environmental capabilities and policies around the world. And it just aligned really well. And I asked for an introduction over to the um, that group and like they made it and and it just progressed from there. So it's been something that we're really looking forward to that partnership and, and having such great support. That's outstanding. And I think, you know, sometimes, and certainly as an investor myself, it can be easy, I think, for companies or for investors or, or just observers uh, of a particular domain to kind of get caught up in the fundraising. It's, in some cases, it, it's almost hard not to. Um, but it's really serving, right, a, a core purpose for you, which is kind of getting that sort of first product out in, in the market and really kind of finalizing uh, your go-to-market approach. So can I, kind of walk us through as you've now built sort of a lot of momentum, both within the investment community as well as within a lot of these early uh, customer groups, kind of walk us through kind of what's next now sure. like for the company. Yeah, so we... Um... We, we set out with a goal um, in our first round of fundraising, which we were totally in stealth mode. We limited it very small on the number of groups that we were going out because we wanted to keep it really quiet, get a, about a year and a half of engineering under our belt. Um, and we, we set out with the goal of doing $20 million in early adopter agreements and LOIs. And we, we ended up like surprising ourselves even 100% of all the customers and partners that we approached for that signed on and we ended up doing $1.2 billion in early pop agreements. <laughs> and it just blew me away. But and and that was one of the real triggers where you think, wow, we really thought of something great. We really thought of something that people want mm -hmm. and need. And so um I think that also speaks to the model. Um, you know, earlier you asked me what were some of the takeaways from having watched a lot of early earth observation companies come into the market. Um, you know, what mistakes did they make? You know, what they do well, those type of things. And We've really built our model on a partner first strategy. And I think that resonated really well with the market we went out because the earth observation industry, you know, if we're, if we're honest with ourselves, um, has a reputation of going out, spinning up partnerships and then bypassing the partner and going to like, get a little user. Like it's almost a hundred percent of the time that, that that's happened. And, you know, I've seen that, I've seen it never, ever work. Like you get a little bump with short-term gains by doing that, but you really hurt yourself by reputation in the market. And I can't tell you how many times where I've gone out and spoken with um, resellers and value adders in the market 
And, you know, they tell you offline, wow, like, I can't believe that that company did that. They, you know, spun us up. We introduced them to the end user and then they call them and ask them to bypass the, the reseller, you know, and that's something that I, I just don't understand um, why someone would do that. But we've got a reputation as an industry of doing that. And when we went out to the market, we said, look, our strategy is partner first. We understand how valuable the relationship is, whether it's Japan, whether it's Australia, whether it's Latin America and Brazil or Argentina, like partners are key to your success. And so we've gone out with that strategy. And I think that with a very unique and valuable data set has really resonated with the market. So we're going out and building building that, that reseller partnership. And we'd encourage anyone that wants to be a, a value-added partner in either a geographic or a vertical market, please reach out. We'd, we'd love to hear from you. Well, I think you're, it, it sounds on paper sometimes, and this is true for not just for space companies, but for really any early stage startup, right? It, it, it sounds so easy on paper, right? But to play the long game, right? Build long-term partnerships, be thoughtful about kind of how you're going to grow with other organizations. And yet it's, it's very hard for a lot of companies to do, right? And the fact uh, that you're doing that, you and the whole team are doing that in a very clear-eyed manner, right? It's just really encouraging. And, and I, I would argue that it highlights just the maturity of kind of where the whole industry is kind of going right? Relative to just where it was a few years ago. So uh, that's something to be proud of, right? And, and now, right, with kind of all that momentum behind you, you're kind of at the at the next trunk uh, of maybe uh, uh, lessons learned for space companies, which is, you know, now focusing on the, the engineering and kind of taking those steps to get the, the first asset in the space. So kind of what, what does that all look like? Kind of from today to imagine you and I are hanging out right in a year. Right. You know, I think one of the, the, the really great things about the question you just asked is it highlights the creative, positive tension that you get in a startup, especially in the space industry. And, and one of those is it's the business team's job to say go and it's the engineering's job, the engineering team's job to say whoa a little bit. And, but I think it really works by creating some elasticity on where you can, can build your business. And it, it spurs the engineering team to really think creatively about what we can do that's possibly out of the box or, or different from the way that the industry does it. And it also puts a little bit of um, practicality in the business teams as well to making sure we, we only sell what we can deliver, right? And so that's, that's the age old challenge in remote sensing is, you try to make sure you match those pretty well, always pushing the boundary a little bit um, to keep moving the ball forward. But um, that's that's been a great experience so far. No, absolutely. And I, I think it, you don't have like your your head of engineering, right? At least uh, scratching their head right. once a week going like, what are the what are the sales people doing? Like something's not right. Like I, this is my, my RT set. Yep. Um, particularly when you're talking about uh, both, uh, both hardware, right. And software. Right. Um, and I think, you know, one of the big things that it will be exciting to see is, you know, once you, you all get through sort of your first light, uh, tests, right. And it can really start highlighting, uh, what all the final product's going to look like. I know, I know I'm excited to see it as someone, right. Uh, to express my own bias here is in a past life, I was one of these people. 
that said, man, I wish we had more LiDAR. So uh, I, I am in. Uh, I am in that crowd as well. It's excited to kind of see uh, the first products coming out. You know, kind of turning your attention, right, to, you know, kind of back on the research community. And, and we you touched on this a little bit uh, with some of the environmental use cases, right, that uh, some of the investors are in, uh, particularly interested in. You know, once some of those initial products come out and, right, you're also working on your software stack, you know, what are some ideas or where do you think maybe the the research community could maybe benefit from this? Because I know, you know, just putting on more of my software hat for a moment, you know, the, certainly one of the topic du jours right in the in the community right now is sort of multi multimodal model, right? This has certainly been true in automotive now for some time, but I think it's even becoming more popular, right, in uh, the geospatial community as well. So. You know, my mind kind of immediately goes to doing some modeling and testing for that with concurrent, you know, imagery and then LIDAR, right? As kind of providing a constant update of information in the map tile. But kind of what are some thoughts, you know, you and the team have had either internals or is there maybe more in the kind of a research or applied research category? Yeah, so I'm a huge believer that today's grad student is tomorrow's partner. Like I am really, really looking forward to working with universities all around the world to give them access to data um, in a meaningful way, um, because I think they're developing a the solutions for tomorrow that don't exist today um, with the lidar data because there just hasn't been enough to work with. And the other one is you know developing industry wide expertise at that level, um, and then from the science community, um, you know we definitely want to be working with. Um, with Goddard, you know, as much as possible. And, you know, it's easy to think of us as a space company, but I mean, really internally, I think of us as an earth sciences company first um, and geospatial company where data is collected from space, right? It's, I, I think it's on how you look at it, but what we're building is to solve problems. It's not a neat science project, but we yeah. want to enable all those scientists to be able to solve problems that we're not going to get away from, right? Um, so no matter how hard we wish, climate change isn't going away. Sea levels are not going to stop rising. So what can we do to help, you know, improve that process to where, whereby we manage it? And so it's not just about the money. It's not just about the startup and the venture, you know, the venture that we're building. But it's also about solving real problems that affect humanity. And I know that sounds like super idealistic, but, but it's real. These problems aren't, aren't going away. Um, and we want to enable everything possible to give those people the, the ability to create new solutions with this data. Um, we do, we are a commercial company, so we have to keep commercially viable, but we want to help solve, solve global issues. Well, I think this is, you know, this is being worn out real time, right? Even I was just like reading an article recently on, you know, aerials, uh, parts of the country here in the U.S., right, that are uh, being marked right, as potentially vulnerable, right, to natural disasters that historically they haven't been vulnerable to. And, uh, you know, part of that, right, uh, is a sign of climate change. And I think the part that, you know, wasn't made uh, 100% clear, right, in the article, um, but I, I can probably make some guesses, is that a lot of those assessments, right, are, like, narrow in their geographic focus just because of the data that's available, right? And even then, those data maybe pretty limited. And so just like a kind of a, maybe not obvious, but close to obvious is just being able to take a deeper look, uh, perhaps from like a time series perspective into a particular part of the country or world, 
or and then more broadly, just taking a bigger look at scale, right? Across yep. all coastlines or other areas, right? So I think I don't think there's anything purely novel there, but I would highly suspect um, that you will have not just researchers, but a lot of groups, right? That are interested in accessing those types of data, right? And coming up with some unique insights. So yeah, I'm excited I mean, to see where this goes. Yeah, one of the questions I like to ask in the academic and science community, um, and and you know, in the future, insurance companies as well is, you know, what if you had access to high precision, high accuracy LIDAR data of every coastline and every ice shelf in the world once per year? Like that's something that's not even fathomable today by by the the way that we collect data. And I think that really brings into perspective that, you know, we're not trying to change the world at new view, you know, in that Silicon Valley, I don't know if you've seen the, one of the first episodes of Silicon Valley, they were like, we're changing the world by, you know, creating these compression algorithms. Like we're not, <laughs> we're not out trying to change the world, but we want to change what is possible to know about the world for that community that is out there changing the world. Well, I, I, I think, uh, I think I speak for a lot of people when, uh, let's say we're excited to kind of see see where you and the company go here just in, in, uh, just in the next few months alone. And it's sort of to close out the discussion, you know, and this is a comment that, uh, certainly comes up a lot within the GRSS community, but also even in, you know, my day job, it's just, you know, what advice would you have, right. For, for people that are either thinking about joining, right. An early stage company or kind of following in, in your footsteps and those of other entrepreneurs, which is, I want to get something started and you know, it's pretty technically complex and, you know, it seems a little daunting at first. What would you recommend? You know, there, there are a couple of answers to that one. And one is if you're wanting to join an early stage startup, like it's not, if, if you're someone that, that functions highly on deeply ingrained processes, your day's ready made for you when you walk in and you've got someone telling you how to do things on a daily basis go join a big space prime, like don't, don't join a startup. But if you need an outlet for your creativity, whether that's in engineering or marketing or, um, you know, or environmental science, um, or even, you know, even some of the traditional business, business lines, like a startup is a great place to really figure out who you are um, as an employee, who you are as an entrepreneur. Um, and, you know, I think it's a great place to really figure out even if you're an adult, what you want to be in when you grow up, you know, and I think that's, that's a hard question for all of us to ask, ask ourselves because we get caught in the hamster wheel sometimes of going to a, you know, this huge organization where everything's already laid out for you. And there's a lot of, a lot of security in that, um, as well. But I think if you're an entrepreneur, um, one of the things that I've learned about myself in this process is, you know, it's not something you don't decide you want to do a startup and then figure out what startup you want to start or create. Like when I, when I came up with the idea from new for new view, like it became an obsession and I couldn't get away from it. And if you're an entrepreneur that is trying to figure out what startup you want to do, you should probably pass and stay an employee till something just overtakes every cell in your body. Because if it's not that, like it's, it's not worth the effort. Like it's gotta be something that's a life and mission goal for you, not just a clever startup. Well, uh, excited to see where, where you and the company go. Um, and I hope, right, at least for the next couple of days, right, you can uh, enjoy some time at home and uh, not be flying back and forth 
um, maybe we could start an alternative podcast. Uh, where in the world is Kirk, uh, Kirk yeah. Carmen? I think that uh, we'll we'll talk to Adam about that. After, after I'm always two steps behind Carmen San Diego for you guys in your your 40s and 50s out there. <laughs> well, glad you know. Thanks again for making time. Uh, really appreciate it. You know, congratulations to you and the, and the whole New View team um, for all the success that you have. And and uh, thanks again for making some time. Thanks. It was great, Ryan. Cool. Well, everyone, thanks for listening to another episode of Behind the Map Tiles, uh, an IEEE GRSS limited podcast series on Project Geospatial. Also, uh, within the show notes, in addition to information on NewView, we will have links uh, to the GRSS annual conference, which is the International Geoscience and Remote Sensing Symposium, which is going to be held in Pasadena, California from July 16th to July 21st. So if you have any questions on that or are interested, uh, please click on the embedded links. Thanks again. Take care.